The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. So eight hours in, eight hours in, working on this talk, and I hadn't written a sentence yet. Today we're talking about a subject that I'm passionate about. It's one I've studied. I've done plenty of study on it in formal school. I've done plenty of study on my own. I've read a ton on the subject. I have prayed a ton on the subject. And this week when it came my turn to prepare a sermon on the subject, I still spent another full day re-studying and re-praying about how I would communicate God's word today from 1 Timothy chapter 2, second half. Yet when it came time to write, when it came, to, came time to figuratively put pen to paper, more like putting keystrokes to pixels, I still stared at a blank page for over an hour. So it's not, pause that I, not without pause that I approach this teaching today. And when I read the passage of scripture, perhaps you'll see why. Our passage today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Now, last week, we covered the first part of this chapter. The background here, basically, the Apostle Paul is giving instructions to be passed on to the members of Timothy's church in the city of Ephesus. It's in the midst of this, this climate of false teachings, this, this spiritual battle that's going on over this church. And in this environment, Paul's first order of business was to pray. Pray, 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 pray. Four times in the first part of this chapter, he uses these different words for prayer and elaborated on who we must pray for. We must pray for, first of all, all people. That covers it. But then he elaborates more. Pray for your kings. Pray for the rulers and those in authority. Pray for everyone who has not yet come to know Jesus Christ and serve him. And that's the background with which we approach the second half of this chapter where his instructions continue. And we'll start reading in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Amen. Should we all just head out now? We had a good church service, right? Is anyone else asking themselves, okay, now, what did we just read? I mean, I'm all on board with last week's message. That was a good one. Good job, Pastor John. Paul talked about the need to pray. He talked about the need for Jesus. But then at a first glance here, there's not a lot here that's so easy to swallow in this passage. Let's see, it seems to say something like, men need to raise their hands in church, 
There are some interesting restrictions on what women can wear. Hopefully nobody's got pearls or gold or expensive clothes. What's expensive? Fancy hairstyles. Some translations say you shouldn't have braids. Uh, Oh, and then women should be submissive. They should never teach a man. They should make sure they have children if they want to be saved. Amen. Anybody else see that? <laughs> what do we do with this? If you look around Canyon Ridge Church, maybe you're thinking, these guys sure don't enforce this one very well. <laughs> but maybe they're going to start. And that's why they're teaching on it today. If you're doing 20-minute mornings with us, as we've been talking about, you read this over and over and over again about a month ago. And I know that it has raised some unanswered questions, particularly among some of the women in our church, because there are a lot more words that reference specifics about what women would be doing than there are in these passages, this passage about men. So let me just come out and say it then. This is a difficult passage of scripture, but that's okay. We're going to walk through it anyway, and today I want to equip you for what you can do when you encounter a difficult passage of Scripture like this one, because here's a pro tip. It's not the only one. <laughs> In a sense, what we're going to talk about today is the absolute basics of interpreting the Bible. I mean, there are entire college courses, seminary courses at the graduate level on this subject. We're not going there. So we're only going to scratch the surface of this. But the basics are usually enough to get us pointed in the right direction instead of in the wrong direction. And you can certainly get more help from there. So let's do it. Let's dive into this. And let's answer this question, how should we approach a difficult passage of Scripture? And the first step I'll give you is this. Acknowledge it as difficult, but still Scripture. Acknowledge it as difficult, but still Scripture. I was thinking through this and trying to ask myself, what makes a Scripture difficult? And I, you know, came up with scenarios, but really just two reasons why we would say something's difficult. One is, I don't understand what the Scripture is trying to say very clearly. Or two is, I don't like what the Scripture says. <laughs> Those two things make it difficult. When I can't know everything I'd like to know, or when it says something I'm uncomfortable with. And it's okay to admit that some scriptures are not as easy for us to accept or understand as others. It's okay to admit that. However, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that this difficult text is not just some random article some guy posted on the internet. Or if I don't like it or I don't understand it, I can ignore it and I won't miss a thing. <laughs> Know this text, these words, they have a purpose. They are part of God's communication of himself and his will to us. So they can't just be brushed aside because we wish they were easier. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he discusses that very subject, actually, and he tells Timothy that, and this is famous words if you've been in the church a while, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So whether or not we like it, whether or not it's easy to understand, we must start by admitting that we can't just live with the easy stuff. Otherwise, we'd start cutting out a lot of the verses from the Bible. 
I mean, anything we don't like, anything we have to work a little extra on, gone. It's too hard. Anything that takes study, out. What is this, school? Uh, anything that requires faith to believe, sorry. And eventually, the Bible would only have a front cover and a back cover, and then a few pages in the middle that have all these verses about heaven and how God answers prayer. But that's not an option. God has a purpose for all scripture, including the difficult stuff. So it's okay for us to admit that a passage is difficult, but we also have to admit that it is scripture. It is God-breathed. It's supposed to be there. It's authoritative. We cannot merely give up on it. It's actually my hope that we will give ourselves the freedom to call a scripture difficult, and that when we do, that'll mean something to us. It won't just go, oh, that's difficult. Okay, moving on. But when we say something's difficult, it means that we need to pay some extra attention to it in certain ways. If it's difficult because I don't like it, it needs my extra attention on how I will obey that scripture, how I will commit to that scripture. It probably needs some extra accountability for me because it's not okay for me to just say, God, I only am going to obey some of your commands and not others. That will deeply harm my relationship with God. If it's difficult because it's difficult to understand, well, then it needs extra prayer. It needs extra study. It needs an openness to change how I understand things as I learn more and more. Whatever the reason is for the difficulty, our attitude should be one of humility. See, we come to God's word not because um, we want to pick and choose what we like out of it. We come to God's word because we need God to teach us. We need to put God's word in our hearts. So that said, I think we will need to dive into the second half of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It is a difficult passage, but it is scripture. It's full of God's purpose and truth. The second thing we need to do when we approach a difficult passage of scripture is learn what it meant in its original context. And then the third and final step is to apply the same principles to today's situations. See, after we spend time and effort to learn what a passage of Scripture meant in its original context, then we can bring those principles forward from that Scripture and apply it to today's situations. Now, this isn't rocket science. This isn't new stuff, some brand new approach to reading Scripture that you've never heard of, right? This probably is not blowing your mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the basic stuff you see demonstrated here week in and week out as one of the staff is up here teaching this is the basic stuff that you are probably already incorporating yourself to some degree when you are doing your readings and your meditation on scripture. But I bring it up today because it is so easy sometimes, especially when we are working with difficult passages of scripture, to skip a step, especially step two. You know, sometimes we're good with step one. I don't know what this is saying, but it's God's word. And then we jump straight to step three, I guess women need to have children in order to be saved. But we haven't done the work to ask what that means or what it meant when it was written in its original context. Now, we could just do that and just start applying things without understanding them. But it'd be much better if we included a look at the original context to figure out how the author would have meant it to be interpreted by its original audience. Without step two, without original meaning and context, 
All we have is instructions, just instructions. However, none of the instructions written in the Bible were written specifically to address life in the United States in the 21st century. None of them. Every command written in the Bible was given in a particular historical context by a particular person at a particular time to a particular audience. In some cases, when we are reading the Bible, we are literally reading someone else's mail. That's what we're doing with the books, First and Second Timothy. These were Paul's letters to his junior partner, Timothy, one person to another. And yet, when we're reading this personal correspondence, we're sitting there and going, what does that mean to me? Paul, I'm writing to Timothy. What does that mean to me? You know, these are the questions we're asking ourselves. We have to keep in mind that they were originally written in a different context. Now, some of the commands in the Bible are written, and they are just really easy to say this applies across cultures, across time, regardless of circumstances. There's some really great stuff in there. And those ones, we love those. They're easy to understand, very clear. But others of the instructions were very specific to the people, places, and time that they were written. And some of those instructions, let's just be honest, we couldn't obey them if we tried. We couldn't, at least not as they're written. Not exactly as they're written. Let me give you an example. Just think about this. Jesus was asked, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, Jesus said, well, give me a coin. Show me who's on that coin. Who's on the coin? Caesar's on the coin? Is that his inscription? Is that his seal on the coin? His response to the people that asked that question was, now this is a command from the Son of God, mind you. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That's a command from the Son of God. But let me ask you this. How much have you ever given to Caesar? I've given some to little Caesars. But there has not been a Caesar or a Roman Empire for over 1,500 years for you to obey Jesus' command as it was written. I couldn't give Caesar anything if I wanted to today. That'd be really hard. I need a time machine. But when I look at the original meaning, when I look at the context of this, I'll find that Jesus taught we have obligations with our money and we should meet them. We have obligations first to God and second, some is rightfully due to those who govern us. I'll look at other passages of scripture, I'll find, guess what? Jesus paid taxes himself. And I'll find other teachings in the New Testament that state we should submit to the governing authorities placed over us and we should be good citizens. Wow, all these teachings come together, they're very consistent. They're complementary with each other in the New Testament. They're not really hard to understand at all. And so when it comes to today, I don't need to worry about the fact that Caesar is long gone. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't keep me up at night, really. I know Jesus' intent was for me to both honor God with my money and meet the obligations I have to be a good citizen by paying the taxes that I owe. We can't skip step two. We've got to understand the teaching in scripture as it was meant in its original context so that we can apply those principles today. So with that in mind, more background. Let's look again at our text for today and see if we can work through some of the difficulties. We'll start with the first paragraph, verses eight through 10. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, 
adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Fortunately for us, I think we get to ease into this a little bit. There's two paragraphs here. This is the easy one, okay, <laughs> by comparison. Again, on the surface, it might look like the Apostle Paul's intent here, he's the guy who wrote this, uh, it might look like he's just shifted gears and he's saying, I'm going to set up some responsibilities. In the church, men, you're responsible for these things. Women, you're responsible for these things. You could get that impression because there's a section there about men, a section there about women, and then it kind of continues on after that. Christian men have certain responsibilities. Christian women have others. Paul is telling us what they are. But it only takes a slightly more attentive reading of this passage to see that Paul wasn't teaching some new doctrine here. He wasn't setting up these new roles that men and women needed to play. He was trying to correct current behavior. After giving general instructions, he told everyone to pray. Everyone needed to be focused on what God wants for the people who don't know him yet. Paul zooms in here and he gets specific to the actual people that Timothy's working with. And he says, tell the men in your church, they need to stop being arrogant and aggressive. Instead of throwing up their hands in anger, tell them to lift up their hands in prayer. A common posture, by the way, that people used for prayer in the times of the New Testament. You can see that through other comparisons in the Bible. Then he says, and teach the women in your church to stop obsessing and with getting everyone else to desire and envy what they have and how they look, having the finest clothes and jewelry, dressing in a way that serves their vanity. Teach them instead that their attractiveness should come from who they are and the good deeds they do. See, as a corrective, this passage actually makes a lot of sense. It wasn't a new doctrine about braided hair. It was a teaching in response to the fact that women in Ephesus were putting style in front of substance. They were putting vanity ahead of godliness. It wasn't a new doctrine about men praying with their hands in a certain position. It was a correction to what they were doing. Yeah, they had their hands raised, but in anger. Yeah, they had their voices lifted, but in arguments rather than in prayer. Now, to me, having that understanding of this paragraph really helps, helps me to understand it. Passage doesn't sound so odd at that point. It doesn't sound so superficial. You know, I mean, you can't wear pearls, you can't wear gold, you can't have braids. But he didn't mention platinum, he didn't mention rubies, he didn't mention diamonds. So what does it mean, right? It makes it so I can easily understand how it would apply today. But here's an important question that we have to ask, though. How do we know that's a good interpretation? I can't just because I like it. <laughs> it can't be just because I find it helpful. Again, there are a ton of things we could learn about how to interpret the Bible, but if I, if I could give you just one today, which is all I really can give you today, if I could give you just one today, it'd be this. Everything scripture teaches fits with everything else scripture teaches. Everything scripture teaches fits with everything else scripture teaches. Now that's a pretty incredible idea. That dozens and dozens of authors could write portions of scripture over 14, 1500 years. And yet somehow we can put all of their works together and when all the things are combined, everything they teach for us to understand and obey is in agreement. That is simply not 
possible. Try it. You'll see. Try it. Write something down now and have somebody 1,500 years later write something else down about how you should act and obey and see if that's in agreement. <laughs> but of course, we're not saying that it would ever be possible for people to do. It's not something that's humanly possible. We believe instead that all Scripture is God-breathed, that God's voice spoke to the very first authors. He spoke to and through them, and God spoke to and through the very last authors of Scripture and every single one of the authors in between. And that even though we have trouble being consistent between breakfast and dinner in a day, God doesn't have that problem over millennia. God is consistent in his word. So in faith, we believe that everything Scripture teaches fits with everything else Scripture teaches. And what that does for us practically is that it gives us a whole lot of help in understanding what God is trying to teach in any given passage of Scripture, because he's not trying to teach against something he taught a few passages ago. <laughs> scripture helps us interpret Scripture. Clearer passages help us understand more complicated passages. Examples help us understand principles. Passages that give background help us understand specific instructions. And if we ever find two scriptures that are at odds with each other or seemingly at odds with each other, we know that some interpretation is not right. Maybe one, maybe both of those passages we're not interpreting right, but there's something missing there. And that's important, especially when we come to difficult passages of Scripture. That if there's some passage of Scripture that teaches the opposite of our current best guess at interpretation, then we have to stop and admit there's something significant that we still don't understand. You see, Scripture helps us with both. It tells us what a passage could mean, and it also tells us what a passage could not mean. Because even the difficult passages must fit in with the rest of everything else Scripture teaches. So when we look back at these verses that seem to be teaching specific actions for men and for women, how do we know that that's a good interpretation, that this is really just about correcting some of the behaviors in Ephesus? Well, first of all, we look at the actual passage we're looking at and say, it is written that way. It says, men, instead of doing these things that you're doing... <laughs> do these things. <laughs> and women, instead of doing these things, do these things. Right? It starts out in a corrective fashion. But beyond that, we look at the context just around this. We look at the rest of this letter, and we see Paul is talking to Timothy about these specific problems. In the opening paragraph of his letter, Paul mentions the problem of people stirring up controversies in their midst. And then he mentions it again in the last chapter of the same letter, the same book, saying some people, quote, have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction. We don't need to guess. <laughs> Sounds like a good thing to address with these men who should be focusing their interests on prayer. Likewise, in this letter and in the second letter to Timothy, Paul specifically mentions some problems that some of their women were having. There were widows who were, instead of devoting themselves to godliness, were making their lives all about pleasure. 
And then in the second letter to, letter to Timothy, he mentions some other problems with other women in the church who were, uh, as he puts it, swayed by all kinds of evil desires. It makes sense then, it makes sense that he would give instructions to refocus these women on good works rather than on fulfilling their sensual desires. How do we know these are not instructions meant to provide unique responsibilities to men and to women? Well, because the part that are instructive in there would apply equally to men or to women. The men are instructed to give up their anger and their dissension and, and replace it with prayer. We have numerous passages in Scripture that commend all of God's people to pray and to put away anger. Oh, the instructions given here to women as well could easily apply to men. There are numerous passages of Scripture that commend all of God's people to reject sexual impropriety, to reject vanity, and demonstrate their faith through good works rather than through any superficial appearance. These aren't just good words for women, and on and on. The point being, we need Scripture to interpret Scripture. And when we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, we can come much closer to understanding what things meant in their original context. And from there, we can more easily see how we would apply them today. So that was the easy part. Dare we move forward? <laughs> All Scriptures God breathes, so yes. The next paragraph is a lot tougher, though. Let's read it again. Verses 11 through 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Throughout the history of the church, this paragraph has had some far-reaching and unfortunate interpretations. It's been used to restrict women from any leadership position in and outside the church. It's been used to make the case that a woman's only rightful place is as a mother raising children in the home. It has been used to teach that ever since Eve first listened to the serpents in the Garden of Eden, women are just naturally more easily deceived than men. Christian scholars, Christian teachers have taught these things. But let's ask some really important questions. Those really important questions we've just been talking about. How would Paul have meant this? in its original context. How does the rest of the Bible help us understand this passage? If it's difficult, we need some clear passages that help us. And right up front, let me just say this. We don't have all the answers we'd like to have. We don't. This was a personal letter between two people who were both important leaders in the church of Ephesus. And trust me, they both had all the background they needed to know what this was about. They had all the background. They knew the people of the church. They knew the problems of the church. They knew the dangers the church was facing, and they had the history of all those things as well. In this letter, Paul didn't say, well, let me give you the background for these instructions I'm going to give you. He didn't need to because Paul and Timothy had lived that background. 
So we won't be able to know everything we would like to know about these complicated verses. These words that I've already admitted are a difficult passage of scripture. But you know what? When we set these verses in the context of what the rest of Paul teaches to Timothy, in the context of what the Bible tells us about the church at Ephesus, in the context of the other things the Bible teaches, we can actually know a lot more than you might guess. So let me hit some highlights for you. Some I'll develop more. I'd love to spend, you know, a few minutes on each one, but we don't have all day. Uh, some I'll hit a little bit more, but, and some a little bit less. But let me tell you some of the things we can know about what this passage is saying. First of all, it doesn't teach that women are lesser than men. We know this because the Bible clearly teaches that both men and women are equally valued in the eyes of God. And the inclusion of women in creation actually made things better, not worse. It says so in the Bible. You may have heard the phrase, it is not good for the man to be alone. That was God saying that phrase about Adam without a female partner. And so when he created Eve, the Bible says, after Eve was created, creation was finished, and God said that everything was now very good. Creation got better with the addition of women. We won't have time to look up every verse that I would like to, but I'd like to show you at least two verses before we move on. First off is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the first mention of women in the Bible. You know what? It's also the first mention of men. And I think this is remarkable. This passage of scripture was written down probably around 3,000 years ago in a male-dominated society where probably the vast majority of men really believed that men were superior to women. And yet, God ensured that when his word was written down, the very first mention of women would be right alongside the very first mention of men and that that first mention would say something incredible about both of them. Both men and women are created in the image of God. You want value? You want worth? You've got it right there. You can't get any higher in value than to be created in the image of God and redeemed by the Savior. Redeemed by the Savior. Let's fast forward to the first century AD and look at one other passage. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. This is written by the Apostle Paul, the same guy, by the way, that wrote this difficult passage of Scripture. We'll speak to him about that when we get to heaven. But here he writes in Galatians 3, 27, 28, he's speaking of all those who had started following Christ. And Paul wanted to clarify that in God's family, the barriers of culture are gone as we find all of our worth and our value in Jesus Christ. He says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in their culture, there were huge barriers between Jew and Gentile. There were huge barriers between masters and slaves. And you know where I'm going with this. There were huge barriers between men and women. But Paul tells them, 
and today is still telling us explicitly things are different in the family of God. Hallelujah. Things are different in God's family because God removes those barriers as we find our value and our worth in Christ. So we know this passage doesn't teach that women are lesser than men. Secondly, we also know that it doesn't teach that women can never teach or hold authority over men. What, you may be thinking? Isn't that kind of what it says? <laughs> I'm not permitting women to do this? Well, in the context of other scriptures, we know of many God-approved examples of women teaching or serving in positions of authority over men. Many of them, I'll highlight a few. In the Old Testament, God chose Deborah as both a prophetess and a leader of Israel, known as a judge in those times. There's a book in the Bible called Judges. It's about the people who led Israel after they came into the Promised Land. There are 12 judges named. Only one of them was a woman. Her name was Deborah. She led the nation. She led the army. She also was a spiritual leader as a prophet in the nation of Israel. And she, out of all 12 judges in the book of Judges, is the only one that comes out with a pretty clean record. She comes out looking better than any of the other folks who had good moments and then maybe bad moments, or there's just not much said about them. God endorsed her in that role. In the New Testament, God chose women to be the very first people to know of the resurrection of Jesus, the very first people to spread the word about Jesus and his resurrected state. Women are mentioned as apostles. They're mentioned as prophets in the New Testament, the two roles that Paul often referred to as the highest offices of the church. Women are hosts of house churches. They're deaconesses. They're considered co-laborers with Paul. This is one of his terms for them. I'm a laborer. They are co-laborers with me in my work. Perhaps most significantly, how do we know Paul, when he was writing this, didn't want to forbid women from all teaching and leadership positions over men? Well, because he, he commended a woman named Priscilla for teaching another apostle named Paul, Apollos about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and correcting some of the things Apollos had been teaching. Now, Priscilla did this with her husband, but in an incredibly unique phenomenon, when these two are mentioned in the Bible, Priscilla's name always goes first. Always. That's unheard of in a time where men were always prominent. Oh, and you know where, where that happened? Where did Priscilla teach Apollos? In Ephesus. You got it. <laughs> she did that in Ephesus, the very city where Paul is writing to Timothy about some things he wants to implement in their church. As a matter of fact, at the end of Paul's second letter to Timothy, he says, by the way, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila, her husband. Their names rhymed. So, <clears throat> real quick, because I know I need to wrap things up, I'll also say the passage also doesn't teach that women need to have children in order to be saved. Everything else in the New Testament clearly tells us over and over again what salvation is about. Salvation is a gift from God that comes when we entrust our lives to him, when we choose to live for Jesus instead of live for ourselves. Everything in the New Testament is consistent about that. That doesn't change here. And if you look at that passage, you look at the passage and how it's worded, it's not even commanded here. It's not, by the way, make sure this happens. It seems to be more in the form of some sort of encouragement that Paul is trying to give. But there's one thing it does teach very clearly, very plainly, that women should be learners. 
And if you look at the text, this is actually the only unqualified command that is in this passage. People might say, oh, well, this command is implied by this passage, or this one is... The only command that's actually just in there as a command is that women should learn. And it says they should learn in full submission and quietly. And a lot of people have gone, yep, see, there it is. They've got to be in submission to the men. They've got to be in submission to their husbands. And it doesn't say that. The passage does not say that anywhere. It simply talks about their attitude in learning, that they should be fully devoted to it. Not being distracted or bringing distraction. And we don't easily see it, but this instruction was actually quite countercultural at the time. In the Jewish custom, they had teachers, and they called them rabbis. They were men, all of them. And the rabbis took on disciples. These disciples were people that would have special access to the teacher, and they would, uh, their goal was really to learn everything the teacher knew about how to live out the Jewish scriptures. And those disciples were men. Now, women got to hear a little bit from the rabbis. They got to attend the synagogue and kind of hear the general teachings that were offered to everybody in the synagogue, but they typically weren't offered much of an opportunity to study anything deeply. Disciples were men, and a disciple's aim was to learn everything the rabbi knew so that perhaps someday the disciple would become a teacher himself, would become the next rabbi. Well, Jesus kind of blew that wide open when he said, I want you to make disciples of everyone. Go out into all nations and make disciples, all those people, and teach them all to obey, all the commands. It was very inclusive. And Paul here is explicitly affirming that the women of Ephesus need not just to be given this opportunity, but they need to take it seriously as well. They are to be committed to serious discipleship. We know this passage in its original context was focused on the command for women to devote themselves to serious discipleship. Just like in the earlier section, this section is probably still a corrective passage in some degree. We've been getting into more specifics, and there's no indication we've moved out of that. So he's probably, Paul is probably still addressing some specific challenges in Ephesus because this advice, of course, that he's giving to women is still certainly good advice for men. Men are also supposed to be devoting themselves to serious discipleship. But it's here in this letter because it is needed to address specifically the women of this particular church. This instruction is about discipleship, and, and we've said it's not about lowering the standing of women. It's not about restricting women from every role of teaching or leadership, or even making sure that women have children so that they can be saved. And we have biblical support for all of that, strong, clear biblical support for all of the above. So then how do we explain the weird stuff then? And the answer is, Here's your definitive answer in a way that fits with what the rest of Scripture teaches. Whatever the answer is, it's, a, it's an answer that fits in, with the rest of what Scripture teaches. 
And many great scholars will give you many great ideas. I mean, they will look into the background in Ephesus to look about how this was a city obsessed with sorcery and false gods. And there was particularly this cult, this female-driven cult of the goddess Artemis. And they'll note that the biggest theme you find in the letters to Timothy are these warnings about false teachings and how they're creeping their way into the church. And they'll make some really good educated guesses as to why the women of Ephesus weren't able to take on certain roles in the church of Ephesus. Or why Paul brings up the corrective teaching on the order of creation. Adam was created first, not Eve. You know, I mean, why is that in there? They'll make some really good educated guesses about those things. They'll make educated guesses about why there's a one-liner in there encouraging women about childbirth and how that it doesn't restrict their salvation. And there are a lot of great theories about those things that I'd love to discuss with you over a mug of root beer sometime. I'm not a coffee drinker, sorry. But whatever we would come up with, in the end, this will still be a difficult passage of scripture where we don't have all the background we would like to have. But it will be one where we have the chance to see what the main point of it is. We'll just be wondering about some of the finer details and that's okay. So what do I hope you leave here today with? First off, I hope you're encouraged to dive deeper and deeper into God's word. If you're not doing 20-minute mornings yet, start. And if you are, I hope you'll commit to studying things deeper when you get to passages like today's. And you don't just uh, give up on them when, they come, when you come across them or, or pass over them or ignore them because all scripture is God-breathed, not just the easy parts. You may need help, and if so, great. That is awesome. That's okay. You've got a number of great leaders here in this church that would be happy to walk through those passages with you. Second, for the women here who have read this passage before, but in something of a different light, I want you to be encouraged. This passage calls you forward into serious discipleship. It doesn't limit your role in so many of the ways that it may seem to at first glance. The Bible teaches that we are to serve in the ways that we are gifted. We are to serve in the ways that we are gifted. So if God has given you a teaching gift, if God has given you a gift of leadership, we at Canyon Ridge Church wanna help you serve in those gifts. And finally, I hope the example we walked through today will help you all in your quest to understand difficult passages better. First in their original context and then bringing the principles forward to today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word, for the promises, for the stories, for the examples, for the teachings, and even the difficult passages that guide us away from ourselves and toward a godly life that honors you. Help us, Lord, to reject the patterns of this world, the patterns of anger and arguing, of vanity and superficial living, of accepting whatever false teaching is popular in the culture right now. Help us instead to be a people of prayer, people of good works, who are serious in our quest as disciples as we seek to become more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray.